Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor and I spoke with Simon Robinson, who is Global Managing Editor at Thomson Reuters. Simon spoke about reporting on the fall of Baghdad uh, in Iraq 2003. He talked about feeling responsible for reporters in sticky situations out in the field. And he talked about what young reporters are asking uh, from newsrooms today. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Great. Well, Simon, really excellent to have you on the podcast. Thanks for finding time very early on a on a Thursday morning. And um, I wanted to start really with a kind of conceptual question of of what is a newswire. You know, for some of our listeners, will be very familiar with it. Some will some will be much less so. So, could you kind of explain, you know, both in the context of Reuters, but more generally, how it works? A newswire, I think, is a uh, a, a journalistic enterprise that uh, collects news, reports on news around the world and provides it to a number of customers. Often we're essentially a a B2B uh, business, a business-to-business business. so um, we're providing, on the one hand, a little bit like, say, the Associated Press, a, uh, a, a news service to the world's other media organizations. So that's um, television stations, uh, digital uh, news websites, newspapers. Um, and then on the other hand, we kind of compete with Bloomberg, which, uh, you know, obviously provides a lot of information in real time to the uh, financial customers. So that's traders, bankers, people like that. So we kind of span both. Uh, I think that the what a newswire is exactly is changing a lot and has changed over the last, certainly over the last decade. I think that traditionally the job of a newswire was to cover breaking news. It was kind of the first responder, as it were, when a, when a news story broke. Uh, and I think now, in some ways, all of the newswires are trying to do many more things for many more people. And that's kind of both exciting and a, and a real challenge. What are those things? Well, one of the things we've done um, over the last few years um, in particular is We've, well, we've done a number of, of new things. We've started to do more um, uh, of our own kind of uh, consumer journalism um, directed at, at um, directly to consumers rather than to other media organisations. We have uh, added a big data team um, to do data journalism, which is true of many of our um, customers as well, uh, especially places like the New York Times, um, the Washington Post, BBC, we do a lot more graphics than we used to. We have begun to get into, um, over the last kind of eight, nine years, a lot more investigative journalism. In fact, I I spent um, uh, a few years uh, working on our enterprise unit, enterprise being um, an American journalistic term for kind of any initiative story that's that's not directly news. and so we've done long investigations. Um, we're doing um, we're doing lots of different things. Uh, we now provide uh, raw material for podcasts, for instance. So we have started doing some of our own podcasts, mostly out of New York. But then we also um, see that there's a, a, an opportunity to provide um, material for other people's podcasts as well. So. And could you tell us a little bit about you know the history of Reuters as an organisation, and also you know the other so AP, um, AFP, like where did these organisations come from originally? Well, Reuters um, began um, with the Telegraph, with the pigeons, or something. with the <laughs> famously with the pigeons. So um, there was uh, a German guy who um, 
uh, who is affectionately known still at Reuters the Baron because at some point he was made a Baron, um, uh, von Reuter. And he saw an opportunity originally on financial news, so he, or on financial information, I guess, um, he spotted an opportunity to, um, to uh, provide um, the closing uh, numbers from um, different uh, markets around Europe. This is um, way back uh, two centuries ago now, about 170 years, um, to provide it in other centres so that if he was the first to get the numbers from Paris to Amsterdam, say, then that would give the people in Amsterdam, the, the people in the market, an, an opportunity to, to essentially to make money. So that's the way it began. And one of the early ways that they would relay the information was via pigeon. You began your career in, in Australia in the kind of Australian equivalent of People magazine, right? So it's a pretty major career change. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of journalists uh, change uh, and switch the, the type of journalism they're doing. So I did start, I, I studied film uh, making at, at university and it was the early 1990s and I think that in Australia um, there was actually a bit of a renaissance of, of film that Muriel's Wedding, uh, Strictly Ballroom, films like this were doing very well globally but nevertheless I kind of looked around and thought well I could probably work on a film set for 10 years voluntarily and not and not get paid this is probably <laughs> not a not yeah. a not a um uh going to be financially that viable so i jumped into journalism um and uh i worked uh, at the australian equivalent it was a startup actually that time inc started the equivalent of people magazine um for a couple of years as as a fact checker which is uh, uh something lots of american magazines in particular used to have and some still do but but fewer and fewer and then what was your own journalistic progression from there to foreign correspondency for time how did you make that move so i um like a lot of australians left uh australia to backpack around for a while and and spent um a year um, mostly in south america and then in eastern europe in the in the mid 90s um and uh to, you, um, I think that Australia is so far from everywhere that when when you leave, you kind of tend to stay a long time. After about a year, uh, my old boss, the editor at, at Who Weekly, which was the equivalent of People, had moved across to Time Australia. In those days, Time magazine had um, various regional editions, and he encouraged me to come back. So I, I, I came back to Australia and I started working for Time, um, both in Australia and then in New Zealand, um, in all for about three or four years. And then I uh, moved to Nairobi. Um, uh, I did not know Africa that well. Uh, it was early 1999, and it was about six months after um, Al-Qaeda had bombed two embassies, one in Nairobi and one in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And I think there was a feeling that, uh, that, that time, which had kind of um, pulled out of Africa in a little way, realized well actually we need we need people on the ground um, more than we thought and so then I was in Nairobi for for four years um, and you wanted to go and report there or was that a that wasn't a choice no I absolutely there? wanted to go yeah I, I I really really uh wanted to to do something different and um this was a, an opportunity that came up so what's the kind of memory that sticks sticks with you from that time I was on the road a lot um probably around 60 percent of the time it was an incredibly interesting time. Um, there was um, conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea. There was conflict in Sierra Leone. 
Um, there was conflict in Eastern uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. There was, I guess, the um, the ongoing HIV-AIDS story, which actually as a journalist, it increasingly was difficult to tell in any kind of novel way because um, uh, until the early 2000s, and then it really became a story, especially in South Africa, around um, anti-retrovirals and whether um, people would get access to these incredible drugs that prolong life. But also I think that um, Africa was really becoming an economic story, um, which... Uh, I, th- I think it still is. In many ways, the the best way to tell the story of Africa these days is is economic. Um, it's in you know it's this incredibly complex, um, f- more than fifty countries, um, each with um, you know j- just as in any part of the world, each with it with its um, um, own dynamic and and um, own politics. And I I just found Africa endlessly fascinating, interesting. Um, the longer I was there, the more I realized I didn't really understand it because to understand something so complex is is really difficult and um, I miss it dearly all the time. And where, when you were there, where were, were you in the, or where was the sort of broader story of what was happening with Time magazine and also the kind of technology and methods of journalism? So did you have a sat phone and things by that stage? How were you filing? I mean, when we had foreign correspondents from an early era, people like, Max Hastings, they talked about the enormous difficulty just of getting the story back. Had that had that changed by that time? It was, uh, yeah, it was definitely beginning to change. I, I would say that when I first arrived in very early '99, I had a sat phone. Um, it was pretty rudimentary, I've got to say. Um, it was definitely still a case that uh, one of the hardest challenges was logistical getting anywhere. Once you got somewhere, there were always stories. So it wasn't often a journalistic challenge; it was a logistical challenge getting around. But you know, obviously, the the internet existed then, and and more and more, you could um, you could uh, you you could find somewhere at the least you could find a kind of an internet cafe somewhere um, from which to file your your stories. In the the big change, I think, for time and for many um, organisations around that time was certainly in in the early and into the mid two thousands was this shift. You know, I, I I guess I was right at the end of this incredible period when. Uh, a lot of my colleagues and, and other correspondents and competitors had to file every day or every other day, and I had the luxury of filing for a weekly magazine, um, which was, you know, if there was a big news story, and depending on when it in the week it happened, I could have a few days to report it and then, you know, would file my kind of one story. And then, of course, what happened was because of the web, we were we we relatively quickly, certainly by the mid-2000s, were, time was... Um, time.com was demanding kind of daily stuff uh, often so that that was the really big shift you told us in advance of the interview that one of your most important stories for time was uh, your story about the fall of uh, Baghdad in 2003 and obviously you were there Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah I was an embedded journalist so um, for 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 anyone um, uh, who kind of wasn't uh, following journalism in 2003 when when Iraq happened the embedded journalists with the this concept the American military came up with of of kind of officially bringing in um, journalists to um, essentially attach themselves to to units that that um, that they would then move with um, uh, as the invasion unfolded so uh, I was with a battalion a US marine battalion and it um, uh, it ended up getting it got to Baghdad on on April 
uh, well, the outskirts of Baghdad on April 7th, and then into central Baghdad on April 9th, and the, that was the day that, um, that the statue was pulled down, and by the unit that I, that I happened to be embedded with, um, it was a unit that saw a lot of conflict during the, a lot of um, action during the, during the invasion. Um, I think it was 21 days from the uh, launch of the, of the invasion to, to the statue coming down, and it, it, there were, um, uh, you know, there were hostilities that this unit had um, on about probably seven or eight of those days, which is actually pretty high. Um, and so it was terrifying and uh, f fascinating. Um, it was really, as an embedded journalist, you were in this kind of bubble, you could really only see what you could see to the horizon, that was your worldview. And there, and comms were a real issue during that um, uh, conflict as well. So, you know, your, your general understanding of what was happening more broadly was, was somewhat limited. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was slightly strange. When, we, when I got to Baghdad, I kind of disembedded myself the, the day after the statue fell. And then I ended up staying through most of that year, um, which was... And what do you think, looking back 16 years on, of the kind of tenor of the coverage from that time, not just your own, but, but mm. more generally? I mean, you know, the big images, you know, Bush with the mission accomplished idea, and this idea that this was the end of a war rather than the beginning. Do you think, do you think that the, the, the press in general got, got that right? Or was there a, a premature sense that a chapter had closed? I think by the time Bush uh, appeared on that, I think it was an aircraft carrier um, with that sign behind him, uh, it was. I don't think that was the, the the problem time. I think the problem time or the the time when the press probably got got it more wrong, if I'm honest, was was earlier. Um, by that point, I think the um, it was pretty clear that that Iraq was starting to unravel. And so, which is why that sign seemed so kind of, um, you know, misplaced or it, it, it really, it really um, stood against what was happening in Baghdad. Um, in fact, at that time, I remember in the middle of 2003, Time ran a cover um, which uh, essentially, um, uh, you know, said that, that, that Iraq was unraveling and uh, which um, I helped report it, along with a few other reporters. And the um, the the both the the Americans in Baghdad who were running Iraq essentially and and back in Washington were really critical of us for doing that, um, but you know it was very clear by that point. I think the problem was earlier, which was in the lead up to the to the invasion that there, you know, with some good exceptions, but that there was too much, um, you know, taking taking leaks directly from from the administration to to bolster their case for an invasion. And when the statue fell, how accurate did you think the reporting of that moment was compared to the actual mood in the square? Because obviously there was a lot of reports saying that it almost felt staged, that the more people were there than there really were in the pit photos that the you know the guy putting the American flag over the statue that was someone told you know it was yeah. it didn't feel real. Yeah, so there's been a lot of um, a lot written and a lot talked about that that moment. Um, I can only really say what I what I know. Um, I was in the Humvee wh when the lieutenant colonel, who was the battalion commander of the um, uh, of that battalion, took the call to go to Ferdosh Square to um, to uh, basically secure that area. It wasn't it, you know initially it wasn't to pull down the statue. I think he made that decision on the spot when he got there. Um, and, 
you know, the whole thing took much longer than might have appeared on, on TV. It, it, it actually took a couple of hours because they had to get this tank recovery unit in to pull down the... And, and originally um, there was an Iraqi guy, I think he was a bodybuilder actually, people did stories on him later. Um, he was had a sledgehammer and he was trying to smash the bottom of this statue, well really the plinth of the statue, but it was massive. It would have taken weeks to, to achieve what he was trying to do. And which is really where the Americans kind of stepped in and and, um, and kind of in some ways helped him out. The moment the flag went on uh, onto the face, there were kind of gasps around the the, the um, square. It is true the square was not full. Um, there were more and more people who came out. I think clearly, you know, there, there was an invading army now with soldiers wandering around Marines, um, and so. Most people, I imagine, were pretty wary of that. Um, most Iraqis, but then they then people did come into the square, um, but it was never full. Um, it it I it was absolutely used as a kind of moment, I guess, to encapsulate that this we've been successful from the from Washington from the the administration's point of view. But it was, um, but I don't think that it was kind of. You know, I don't think that someone in Hollywood kind of scripted it beforehand. That is my impression. So I think it was much more organic. Was it used for propaganda purposes? Well, clearly. But it wasn't kind of, you know, uh, created in, in the way that some people have suggested from all that I saw. Can we talk about the, the writing and editing process when you were at Time? Um, you know, how it worked. Um, I, I heard an interview once, not about Time, but about Newsweek, it's kind of high period in the 60s and how there were huge fights in Vietnam between the correspondents in the field mm. and, you know, what was going on back, back in New York. How, um, you know, how heavily edited was that kind of stuff? How collaborative were the stories being pulled together what, what was the sort of process so I think by the time I joined time in the mid 1990s that period had ended uh, classically at both Newsweek and at time through the 60s and 70s and actually even earlier um, there, there's there's still um, uh, the memory at time of um, a period of reporting on the Chinese revolution and the reporter in China at the time was um, reporting what he saw and Henry Luce, who ran, founded and ran Time, um, felt very strongly that um, he he um, certainly was kind of anti-communist. So he uh, the the um, reports that were appearing in the magazine were very different from what the reporter in China, and you know there was that that so that tension existed many many times over the years, and that was because basically the reporters in the field didn't write; they reported in those days. Um, and would file thousands of words every week to writers in New York, uh, in both cases, for both magazines. And then those writers would, would take that file and often files from other reporters around the world and then often from the library and researchers and kind of synthesize something um, in this kind of very, uh, I guess, usually relatively well-written but kind of synthesized um, uh, view of the world from, from New York. And I think by the mid-1990s when I joined, um, that model was really beginning to break down, partly because of uh, finances. Uh, it just wasn't that efficient. And uh, having two people essentially doing the same piece. In a way, yeah. And, and I, th I think also there was like a stronger and stronger push from the field that, that the reporters should, should write. I think initially there was some bumpy periods during that changeover because it turns out that some of the reporters couldn't actually write that well <sighs> but but by the mid 1990s and certainly now you know reporters write their own stories they are often still well when I was at time and that was up until 2010 early 2010 they were still pretty well pretty heavily edited 
Um, so yeah, so but it but it had definitely changed by then. And thank God, because when I read, you know, pieces by say Anthony Lloyd or something, so much of the power of those pieces are from feeling him there and writing almost quite poetically about what he's saying. Absolutely, yeah. So that would be that would be lost. Talking of editing as well at Reuters, the editors' bylines are also included on yes. pieces, which is not common elsewhere. Mm. Um, how long has that been going on? And it certainly predates my arrival here, which was in May two thousand and ten. Um, uh, so I, I can't, I'm not sure exactly of how long, but I think the idea is that it gives some sense of ownership and it also, um, you know, if you're going to put something out, then you, having your name on it kind of also is is both a credit at some level, but also as it, it imparts a sense of responsibility that you have for the piece. And but, also perhaps motivates editors to put more time and effort into a piece because they are getting feeling that they've got recognition for it. Sometimes. I think that, you know, I think at a newswire that we're, we're producing thousands of pieces yeah. every day. So uh, some stories certainly are edited um, much more deeply and, and the process is, is longer. Um, certainly at the, at the longer end of the, of this, of the kind of um, spectrum. But a, a, lot of, a lot of pieces kind of go through the desk pretty mm -hmm. quickly. Can we talk then about your your move to Reuters? Like, how did that come about? And then, you know, what was going on in in the evolution of of Reuters at that time? I think a lot of a lot of people came in externally, right, to sort of change the emphasis in some ways. What what was how did the move happen for you? And then, what was the mm. kind of brief when you came on board? Yeah, I think um, uh, when I came in, so I left Time in I think February two thousand and ten. Came to Reuters in May and. Uh, I think there was a growing realization that Reuters had to do more things. Um, with it's still kind of the financial crisis was still going on, and I think that um, there were um, various stories in some ways that we weren't telling that there was a strong desire to tell. And as that realization uh, uh, came about, uh, they did start bringing in more people. Um, there were quite a few people who came in from the Wall Street Journal about a year after I arrived. And so there was a bit of a shift uh, internally. I don't think, I, I think it's easy to, it's both easy to overstate the shift because fundamentally, you know, a newswire still covers the world and that's absolutely what we should do. Uh, it's just that the way you do that, I think, has, has changed. So there are multiple different kind of uh, approaches to, to covering the world. And I think that over the last eight or nine years, uh, and not always easily, but 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 always, I think, with good intention, we're trying to cover the world in a way that really resonates for our clients, for our customers, our thousands of media customers around the world, and then also for our big uh, financial customer, so that so to keep them happy, basically. Um, uh, is it is it essentially a kind of breadth versus depth? argument is it that you should you be trying to be first on everything or versus producing these kind of big enterprise pieces i mean i remember reading this few with an editor at the new york times who said i know which is obviously very different but said with their new york coverage they made a decision you know they weren't going to cover every fire in brooklyn they were going to do fewer things in more depth is that is that the heart of the debate for you guys as well i think it's the it's the fundamental balancing act that we're always trying to pull off and so that is not always easy uh, we do need to cover lots of different things for lots of different people in many parts of the world. 
it it is true that we can't cover every single thing. I think that uh, over the last few years, we've really emphasized breaking news, as in we want to break it. We want to be the first to say this happened or uh, we discovered, um, you know, this company was involved in some corporate malfeasance or this politician is about to quit or... Uh, or, or or identify trends that, that maybe no one else has identified and kind of be the one to call, um, you know, well, this is happening um, and where our reporting informs us in a smart way that, that this is happening. And and, uh, and I think that, that that is different to, you know, breaking news is different to covering breaking news. We kind of have to do both, but the more we can break news ourselves, the better, because then we become much more indispensable i think i mean i think a lot of media companies around the world really are trying as hard as they can to be the indispensable read not all of us can be clearly um and we we kind of compete with each other um but we want to we want to provide for our customers uh and our readers uh the the kind of best most uh i guess informative and also most insightful uh, news from around the world Another piece that you wanted to talk about today was uh, a piece you worked on about Starbucks uh, and it's kind of the the enigma of its tax uh, avoidance and its accounts and how it doesn't its accounts don't match up with what it's been telling investors about uh, its success. So why did you want to talk about that piece? Well, I just think it was a good example. I think that was from about five years ago. So mm. a reporter here called Tom Bergen um, uh, did that piece. He noticed that uh, over the previous 10 or so years, Starbucks had uh, reported, had uh, often publicly and with um, investors and with journalists uh, talked about Britain as one of its best and most uh, fast-growing markets, but that it had reported to the British tax authorities um, uh, mostly losses. Um, over that period. And so there was obviously some sort of disconnect. So he dug into that. Um, the piece really resonated, uh, certainly here, to the point where people would go into Starbucks and when they asked um, for your for your name to, to give you the coffee, the people would say, pay your tax. And so mm -hmm. then I, I guess the idea was that, that, that someone behind the counter would shout out, pay your tax um, a minute later or so. Uh, so um, I think it was just a good example of, of the way that uh, we as a, as, a, as, a, as a newsroom have evolved. I don't think that that story would have been uh, done 10 years earlier or even five years earlier. So it's the kind of story that um, uh, I think really is of interest to lots of our, our customers and readers, obviously. Um, and it, it then triggered a whole uh, a range of um, reporting. Um, and we obviously weren't the first to, to report kind of um, uh, the, the tax uh, approach of, of various big corporations. But there, were, there was around that period a real focus on that. And um, we, did, we did a lot of reporting, as did other organizations, other media um, organizations. And I think, uh, I think you know, uh, investigating and, uh, and identifying uh, things like that uh, is of huge value to, to readers um, because it just, it just kind of exposes parts of the world that, that are otherwise covered. And what I thought was interesting with that was it was sourced from earnings calls, right? That, which, which are public yes. documents, right? So it was kind of in the public domain, but it was, you know, someone had to go in there and it was a sort of mm. open secret. In some Hiding ways, but... in plain sight, as yeah. an editor of ours used to say. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there are lots of stories like that. And actually, that's where data journalism 
uh, is really useful where sometimes the story is lost because it it's kind of lost in in a mass of data or in a mass of information that's difficult to filter or difficult to decipher in some way difficult to read so the so so journalists who can see that and then spot the the, the story or the potential story uh, you know are hugely valuable so did the journalist come across that was he just kind of digging around and that's how the story came about or yes or more was... or less yeah he he yeah exactly so he hadn't been told to kind of investigate no and what about the broader kind of business focus of, of your coverage so i was saying off air that i was a stringer for reuters for for two years in west africa and one thing that i found very interesting doing that was i think a lot of people went into that work because they wanted to, to be a foreign correspondent they had a kind of you know it was romantic and it was exciting and and you know but the organization and, and it was clear was there was this focus you know real focus on business and i was sometimes you know slightly skeptical of this thinking like you know no one really like grew up being really interested in ivorian coffee futures or or something like that but that was you know what the organization focused i mean how how i suppose how broadly do you draw the the lines of what is a mm. business story uh, so we, yeah, you're absolutely right. We, we, we do both. And I mentioned earlier that we kind of, in, in some ways, on one side compete with the AP and on the other side compete with Bloomberg, which is obviously focused a lot more on the financial and business uh, type stories. Well, first of all, I think uh, those stories, uh, you know, we, we have a, a, a big customer and a lot of our revenue comes from that. And we absolutely uh, need to cover the world in that way. Uh, and there's, there's, um, uh, it's it's really useful for lots of people. I also think that often the best way to tell the story of a country is through a business story. Mm. Uh, telling the story of France, say, through luxury goods is in some ways just as revelatory as digging directly into its politics. Uh, you know, the, 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 the way that kind of I guess merger of art and and commerce in a, in a, in a luxury goods firm happens, and the personalities and 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 uh, and the finances of companies uh, w- will tell you in many ways as much about how France works as as any other type of story. Uh, so I think that we take a fairly broad um, view of of where where the line is between a you know a business story and a more general story, and in, in any case, it's a bit of a blurred line because. Um, because business stories, we think, are, are can be general stories as well. There are business stories or, or kind of um, information that we need to get out to clients that is uh, that can be presented in charts or in tables or just as data points that is also incredibly useful that doesn't have to be kind of high journalism. Mm. Um, and that's also really, really important. And so what's the, the business model? Again, this is something I never, when I was at the very far end in the field, I never quite understood. Like, the, the, there are subscribers, but they, they're paying... Because I also never understood that you would write a piece of Reuters and it would be on open access online. But what, what is the subscription product? Like, who, what are people paying for? Where does the... That, that I never quite understood, the, but we're interested to know there's a gap. There's a gap between when it gets to all of our clients and when it appears online for us. Mm. Uh, and essentially, if you're a subscriber, you're paying in some ways um, for for that delay. Uh, in for our financial client, uh, we uh, you know obviously the seconds count there. If we uh, beat Bloomberg on um, the news of a rate rise, uh, a central bank somewhere announcing a rate rise, even if we beat Bloomberg by a few seconds, then that is uh, incredibly valuable for all those people who subscribe to Reuters. 
in, in the markets. Um, and, you know, so that's a bit of an arms race. Um, and, and, and when I say people, often nowadays it's not people, it's computers. So, um, you know, a lot of trading companies will have algorithms that are reading our news and our kind of alerts, our snaps that go out and then trading off of those. So it's often kind of computer to computer, incredibly. Um, and then um, the, on the other side, all our media customers around the world, they use us for, I think, covering parts of the world that they can't be. Because if, say, the New York Times wants to have a, a full report um, of the world, or however much of a report of the world that they want, you know, they rely on us for a lot of stuff. And we do have a website, a consumer website, but the uh, the pieces that appear there, there's a delay. Um, uh, so, you know, our customers get it first. So how many reporters do you have reporting into you at a given time? Um, into me at the moment? Um, well, I've just shifted job. Um, so I'm in a slightly different job. So I actually don't have any... I don't have lots and lots of direct mm. reporters um, reporting into me now. Um, I'm in. Uh, I'm in. I'm looking after the newsroom, so that that's a pretty broad um, kind of um, mandate. So the the reporters generally, we have nearly twenty five hundred um, journalists around the world, and they broadly, most of them, report into three people. So our global head of visuals, our head of kind of news reporting uh, and planning. And then our head of um, of news production and publishing, basically. So those three people, most of the newsroom kind of report up to those three people. And then I take a, a, a broader um, look at, at uh, across those three at, at bureaus and um, training and, you know, bringing new talent in, retaining talent. Um, What's the turnover like for talent and for reporters? Are they, do you tend to it, work with the same ones for many years? There are a lot of people who have been at Reuters for a really, really long time. Uh, and the answer is really it depends on what part of the world you're talking about. So uh, it's it's much higher in, in some parts. It's it's higher in Asia. I think just the economies, the economies of Asia uh, tend generally in the jobs market to be to have a kind of higher turnover rate. So it's you know, it's lower in, in Europe. Can we talk about the big Iran investigation that you did? So this, into, I don't want to mispronounce the name of it, but um, you know this organization in Iran that was holding enormous amounts of property. And what I thought was interesting with that was, I think as you mentioned, like an example of the sort of sheer reporting horsepower that you can bring to something. But I also thought it was interesting, you know, this is a huge, you know, three, three part, a very big story about, you know, a, a relatively niche subject, perhaps one could one could say that. And I'm thinking, you know, what what were the decisions that were made in terms of like, yes, we're going to invest a lot of time into it. The challenge is pulling it together, and then you know how what kind of impact did that make? So yeah, that was a story or a series of stories. Um, it's it's six years ago now. It was when I was working uh, in the on the kind of investigative desk um, in this part of the world, and it was done by f- three or four uh, reporters. Um, it, interestingly, it was all reported from outside of Iran, mm-hmm. um, which obviously has its own challenge, uh, although um, also um, uh, gives a certain level of freedom as well. And it was an investigation into a kind of financial empire that the supreme leader of Iran had built, partly on the back of property siege- seizures. Um, it was... I think it was just one of those really compelling stories. So um, it was certainly not um, when I don't think it was niche necessarily. 
I think it, it said a lot about Iran and it was very, um, it was incredibly revelatory. No one had really looked at this before. Uh, we identified a, a, a kind of a, a, a huge um, chunk of wealth um, that he controlled. And obviously it said a lot about the way um, the Supreme Leader asserts power and the way Iran works. So we thought that it was, uh, we thought it was a, a really uh, interesting uh, interesting subject that, that lots of readers would be uh, interested in. And and I, I think the impact, um, you know, it, it it got various people in, uh, I think, in the U.S. government interested in, in how it worked. Um, certainly um, in terms of sanctions, it was looked at. Uh, but it, it, uh, it, I think with something like that, it kind of, it, it, it it's not necessarily going to bring down a government or anything like that, but uh, do you think we've said its name yet? Have we? So, it's Satad is the name yeah. of the is the name of the organization. I mean, it's still kind of the the uh, uh, the most comprehensive look at that organization. I don't think anyone else has really dug into it. What in was the, the seed way. of that um, investigation? Um, one of our investigative reporters uh, had got some documents and. Um, and and that that's where it began. But it took it took months of reporting. Uh, it was not an easy an easy story to report. And and I was one of the editors on it. And can we talk a little bit about your role as global managing editor? Uh, which so when did you come into that I, role? I uh, really started in about two months ago. So could you describe a typical day, for instance? What does it entail? Mm-hmm. Or is no two days? There's no yeah. The, it's it's really different. And and because I'm just beginning the role, I think that. Uh, uh, I'm still working out how it, how exactly it will work, but I'm involved uh, a lot in thinking kind of longer term uh, strategy around hiring, um, where we want to focus, uh, if we want to prioritize um, certain parts of, um, of of our coverage. I work closely with the uh, the main um, person driving news coverage because it obviously has to align with what she. Um, what she wants, um, and this has all kind of come about because uh, we, uh, we we've essentially over the last nine or ten months restructured the the newsroom and the way we manage that, uh, and and we mostly in the past our chief organizing principle in some ways was geographic, so we kind of divided the world into three. Mm. And in in some ways those three newsrooms were kind of operating almost somewhat independently of each other. The idea here is that we have moved to a chief organizing principle where we have kind of the news gathering and then the news production, and it's it's more global. Um, so we're trying to operate more globally. Can we talk again about kind of writing and editing questions? So with, with these longer things, what I found interesting with that was, you know, Reuters has this very crisp style for breaking news of, of you know, relatively short paragraphs, quite punchy, um, you know, a kind of a kind of house style, and how a how is that produced when you have people perhaps at the far end who are not necessarily native English speakers or things like that, but also when it comes to a more enterprise-led story like this, how you know that I mean that's six thousand words, something something you know, it's big. How do you go about kind of working out the style and the and the way? from a writing and editing perspective, you want to put this stuff together? I think just different stories require different approaches. And I think the kind of classic inverted pyramid, which, uh, you know, works really well for breaking news, it's um, 
it, it, it Could get, you explain what that is? For yeah, sorry, know. inverted pyramid. So that's basically, you know, the, the most important... Uh, uh, the, the the most important news at the top, and then kind of I guess progressively more and more detailed um, down certain paths as as you go down. So you know, um, the president today said X. That's the news, and then you know you provide a bit of context, and then you as the story progresses, you um, you add um, more and more de- more detail. But really, what you want to know is is the news at the top. And I think for breaking news, still that's an incredibly useful. Uh, way to to relay information it's not the only way and I think that uh, one of our challenges in some ways partly because a lot of our clients um, uh, are are doing news in different ways is working out how we can help them uh, to make do that experimentation in ways that 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 they're going to be happy with Um, we uh, you know, should we provide clients uh, information not not in story format, but maybe just, you know, in a series of bullet points? Is that the best way for them to take it in? Maybe sometimes the answer is yes. Uh, maybe sometimes they want the perfectly written story that they can put up on their web, their digital website to um, before they, um, but so that allowing them to go out and kind of do a a, a, a piece that's related, but certainly angled in a different way. Um, so I think that that there's a lot of kind of experimentation at the moment, um, which is which is exciting. As managing editor, you're going to have a lot more of a personal, uh, almost sort of a slight kind of HR role with a lot of journalists. You know, people come to the managing editor with personal issues and with problems to do with their job, and it can be, I suppose, quite heavy with some of the issues that you have to deal with. What, what have you noticed? A kind of shift in what these issues are for journalists in 2019 particularly with what's been happening in the media landscape it's a really interesting question yeah i think that there are in certain parts of the world um i think that being a journalist has become more challenging i think the way that we approached it uh is to say well first of all to recognize that we've always faced some of those challenges so if we're um reporting in very challenging places in the world we have a long history of doing that day in day out and and the way we deal with that is just to just to report we are absolutely committed to being independent free from bias uh we we give people fair you know all opportunity to get have fair comment um so and we do that we practice that kind of old-fashioned journalism in some ways around the world day in day out so that when uh, world leaders have kind of popped up in in places um, and and challenged journalism and journalists in ways that you wouldn't expect normally in that country. I think that we've kind of taken the approach. Well, hang on, we've done this in lots of places around the world for years, if not decades. So I think that one of the um, uh, big challenges you're right is is just and you know with social media, I think journalists are, have become in some ways um, a little more exposed. Um, and we need to be really mindful of that. We have uh, a lot of um, attention, especially over the last few years, to um, kind of mental health issues, to our, the well-being of our journalists. We have a peer program, which allows, um, which basically, if someone's feeling really stressed, it was originally kind of set up in part because for journalists who are covering um, wars and conflicts, but it, it can be, you know, um, covering a central bank can be very stressful if you're having to snap and beat Bloomberg by three mm-hmm. seconds. 
um, so the, it, it allowed someone to to have a uh, someone who was trained maybe for a couple of days in in being almost a bit like a counselor, not not formally, but but unofficially, and and just someone to talk to within the newsroom because they understand other journalists really well. We also have an outside um, organisation that does um, stress and counselling, um, trauma counselling for us. We have a mental health champion. Um, so we've paid a lot of attention to that. I would also say to answer your question, you know, what are the kind of um, issues that people come to? I think that a lot of uh, a lot of reporters, and particularly, I think, millennials and uh, Generation um, Z or Z in America, um, are really concerned more uh, to a greater degree about things like maternity leave cover, opportunities um, to move around, um, and 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 a um, kind of much more actively um, kind of demanding of those things in a way that probably previous generations weren't. So that's an interesting challenge for any company, frankly, um, and in particular for a media organization where, you know, uh, its budgets are always tight. And, and so I think that I think that a lot of my work over the next couple of years will be around um, um, issues that really concern a lot of our, our younger reporters in particular. Could you talk about the where your reporters were imprisoned? Was it in Burma that there were? In Myanmar, they, yeah. there we had two reporters, um, uh, Walone and Chao Sa'u, um, who were, re- who were uh, arrested in late, two th- let me get this right, late 2017. Yeah. And for some reporting that they were doing, we 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 had um, we were doing a lot of reporting on the um, on the Rohingya uh, and the kind of uh, oppression and, and in some cases violent oppression of Rohingya. Um, and we we had looked at a town, a village where uh, a group of men had been killed, essentially. And um, these our reporters were arrested and imprisoned and and only got out earlier this year. And how does the the structure of your news gathering organization split between kind of international staffers, local staffers, and stringers? How does how, what is the breakdown? On we're that? a really uh, we're a really global organization. We have um, lots of uh, um, one of our great strengths, I think, are our our local reporters around the world, and that could be um, both in Paris and it could be in Myanmar. Um, so we have a real mix. Uh, I think that traditionally the model, I guess, was like for many media organizations that the um uh the uh, in the in the case of of Reuters partly because it has a has a long history in in London that uh Brits would go out into the world and and then um reporters would be kind of uh come from both local sources and 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 often from the UK um now we're much more i think mixed and we have our we're listed in in Toronto and New York, so we have a massive newsroom in New York. Uh, I think that we um, uh, and and that model is is really broke, breaking down um, in a good way. I think we're we're a lot more varied, and we're really uh, we really want our bureau chiefs and our senior most uh, reporters to come from all around the world. Where do your young reporters tend to want to go now? Um. I think that it's not so much where they want to go. I mean, there's a lot obviously interested in places like China, but uh, I think it's not where it's. It's kind of what beats they want to cover. I think um, things like cyber are really um, 
are kind of sexy for a lot of reporters. But we we cover because we're so big, we cover so many different subjects that uh, and and so many parts of the world that uh, I think you know reporters are are interested in lots of different parts at the moment you know i mean obviously brexit has kind of here in london kept us enthralled and we see our role really to be explaining that often quite arcane kind of parliamentary procedures to the world in in a sense we we um while at some level we compete um um and provide for british um media organizations we um, we're really writing for a world, a global audience. And so, you know, explaining Brexit to people um, is is interesting. I, at, at various points, I think that people have kind of got a bit tired of it. But I know my mother in Australia um, still says, oh, I saw what happened the other day. And so people are still aware of it and, and watching. She's, it, she's got some distance from yeah. it, right. Um, so we always ask about money on, on the podcast. And again, uh, pursuant of that kind of previous question, I remember when I was in Africa, you were conscious that there was a kind of caste divide as a stringer and a staff between what people were paid and also between what local and, and international staff were paid. And I was also conscious, you know, not just with Reuters, but with news organizations in general, that often when you have kind of freelance people in potentially difficult parts of the world, there's a mm. question of are they insured? Mm. How's that covered? And Reuters mm. did, did pay for my insurance when mm. I was there. But how do you negotiate that piece in terms of, you know, who, how, what burden of duty of care do you have for people who are at different arm's length from your organization? I think that anyone who works for us regularly, we absolutely have a duty of care for. I think that, and we, we have, and we really pride ourselves on our hostile environment training and that is open to our freelancers as well. We, we do a series of um, training um, courses around the world uh, every year in lots of different parts. And uh, we often have freelancers who work regularly for us in those. Um, we, um, and, and then, you know, obviously in terms of pay, we're in, we're in something like 150 countries we, um, you know, we, we tend to operate uh, as, as most international organizations do, um, you know, looking at, at the local market, really. Um, uh, and um, so that, that's the way we operate. What do you find the most kind of stressful, maybe hair-raising part of your job when you're thinking about everything that you have to look after? Is it, for instance, feeling responsible for so many people in quite dangerous situations all the time is it budget and going forward uh and adapting to changing um newspaper models and news models or is it you know personal issues within the newsroom or is it legal issues to do with certain stories i think it's a mix of all those things i think that whenever there is uh a conflict we're all really really aware of of the dangers, um, we. What's kind of been the diciest situation for you? Well, not personally, but when thinking about responsibility. I mean, I've only really been in this job a couple of months, mm. so um, I, I previously was running um, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and uh, you know, obviously, over the last few years, Syria has been incredibly challenging in many ways to as a as a place to report. Um, I think when. Um, ISIS was in northern Iraq that um, or in Iraq uh, that was um, that was really challenging as well I think we're really aware of 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 how we handle 
our reporting teams and our people in those situations. We have security advisors with us, um, with those teams. Um, we, we kind of regularly check in. For the last few years, I've been on a weekly call, a security call where we discuss all the issues that we face. Mm. Um, so we're really aware of that. Um, I think we have a pretty good protocol and uh, we, and we're constantly kind of looking at it and, and thinking about how we can improve it. Uh, I think that at the same time, you know, we there is a lot of change in any media organization. There's lots and lots of change. And I am really aware that that change is often stressful for our people and our reporters. And I'm um, always kind of happy to talk to, to reporters. In fact, I was just talking to a couple of people yesterday a couple of editors about about some recent changes and 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 where they work where that's working and where where you know there are there are still challenges and I think that constant kind of um, um, needing in some ways as an organization to remain viable and to remain um, really successful which we are uh, for you know you constantly have to think about change and how you're going to adapt but you want to do it in a way that sets you up for success and continued success, but also makes your people happy. Change in itself is often stressful. So um, managing that ma and managing through that is, it can be really challenging, I think. And so a final thing, you know, for yourself, becoming a manager, you know, it's a very different, or a leader, really. Mm. What's, that's very different from being a reporter. And I think often, you know, news organizations have this thing where people will be promoted because they're good journalists and then they're managing teams, and that's a very different role. How did you find that transition? And were you, is there training available for that kind of thing? Yeah, we get some, we get some training, and we also train, um, you know, bureau chiefs. We have kind of regular newsroom training um, that, that's, that some of our new leaders and managers can can um, uh, can come to uh, a few times a year. Um, I think you know it is challenging. I, I I really love to think that I'm a journalist who manages rather than a manager who you know sometime in the distant past was a journalist <laughs> because I think it's important to kind of stay rooted in the journalism and and that's why we're here. That's why I got into this business. Uh, and so for myself, I mean, speaking really selfishly, I guess that 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 is a source of um, energy uh, to 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 engage with the journalism. Um, but, you know, I think then you, the, the other way to think of it is that when you're managing, you're kind of creating the I guess the the grounds, the the environment in which good journalism can flourish. Uh, and so that's also important. Simon, thank you very much for talking to us today. That's been fascinating. So thank you. Thanks a lot. Hello, it's us again with an update from our lives. Ellie off has just said she has nothing to say. I really actually. want a coffee. Um, I, how are you? <laughs> I mean, I'm okay. Uh, I mean, I, I've been working on some more Alpine themed stories. Oh, shut up, <laughs> which is great um and i've been you must have some really nice outerwear and and uh thermal base layers and mid layers as well for yeah. uh outside <laughs> magazine wait what did i call it outdoor, uh, outdoor magazine. magazine yeah um so yeah i've been i've been doing that i've been wrapping up my paternity cover magazine stuff uh and the continued shenanigans of my book um and yeah so so all good beginning lots of fan mail about that i have i have yeah yeah which um are I've you applying to everyone? You yeah, must. yeah, graciously, graciously. Any horrible ones? Uh, no, 
None from the army? No, they've been very quiet. So Classic. <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason this is slightly stilted is that we did this interview very early in the morning. Ellie hasn't had a coffee yet. You have to say something. Who are you calling stilted? I'm asking you lots of questions. Um... It's part of your fascination to probe me open as a <laughs> yeah. podcast host. Uh, what am I doing? Well, I am going to the Ned's Halloween party tomorrow night. Anyway, so that that's us. Uh, <laughs> uh, this has been uh, Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. Uh, please do rate, review and subscribe on iTunes and do find us on social media. We're on Take Notes Always on Twitter and Always Take Notes on Instagram and Facebook. And if you uh, enjoyed the show, do think about supporting us on Patreon where we are at Always Take Notes. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>